Open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 7, as Gino said. We're going to look at the first 19 verses, Lord willing. It's a study we're calling, Spare the Rod, Spoil the Nation. I'm an advocate of spanking if it is conducted in a manner consistent with the Bible's teaching on corporal punishment. By spanking, I do not mean abuse or hitting or violence against children. I know what that looks like from my volunteering as a law enforcement chaplain. The Bible advocates the use of an implement called a rod to inflict a stinging pain upon the buttocks of a child in order to discipline them for disobedience and rebellion. When your child has earned a spanking, there can be no turning back. Send them to their room, go get the rod, which is an age-appropriate paddle, go into their room, Clarify the reason or reasons why they must be disciplined. Apply the paddle properly to the buttocks. Let them cry, but never excessively. Pray with them, and then everybody goes on with their life. Uh, Once you say, go to your room, some kids will plead with you to not spank them. They'll be good. They didn't understand, but now they do. Just give them another chance. Other kids get defiant. They go, but they're rebelling still in their hearts. Either way, the spanking is administered and it accomplishes its purpose. Ezekiel refers to a rod in verses 10 and 11. After literally hundreds of years of warnings, it was time for God to spank His backslidden people. It must be done for their own good, despite either their pleadings or their continued defiance. Passages like these are no more fun than it is to discipline a child. But they do provide us with insight into the father heart of our God. He acts as any loving father must act. If we bear that in mind, we won't think any of this strange or accuse him of some wrongdoing. We will, in fact, weep with him for the necessity of his actions. And so let's take a look, beginning in verses 1 through 3. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. Obviously, the word that jumps out from these verses is end. Times of instruction followed by warnings were ended. Times of sending prophets to prophesy were ended. It was time for the Jews to go to their rooms, as it were, and get their national discipline. Now, don't get stumbled by the word anger. We immediately think of someone losing their temper and acting rashly. We might suggest they go to anger management. Uh, That's become a big thing. In fact, we even, uh, people who are angry now, we think that they have a disorder. Uh, It's not enough that you just get mad and it's wrong. You have sudden anger disorder. Uh, S-A-D, to which uh, Don McClure used to always say, no, I have S-O-A-D, son of Adam disorder, Uh, and you're just a sinner, and this is how you express it. But at any rate, when you see the word anger, maybe not you, but it troubles me sometimes until I put it into perspective. God's anger is already managed. His anger is his action against sin after his long suffering has run its course It's an attribute that accompanies His holiness. Because God is love and because He has made Himself sin on our behalf, He can be long-suffering, waiting for men to turn from their sin. 
But because he is holy, he must hate sin and he must judge sin. He would repay them, he says, for their abominations. Now, we've seen that the major issue, the abomination was their idolatry involving immoral and illicit activities. They had chosen to pursue those practices and they had earned their punishment. If you're a good parent, you set realistic rules and boundaries for your children. Your kids know them or they should. In a sense, they earn their discipline by willfully choosing to disregard and to disobey. They bring the punishment on themselves. I mean, you say, look, you can go this far and no farther. Does that mean I can stand on the line and lean over it? Or does that mean I have one foot over the line or one foot in? And you know how it is with kids, you know. Uh, and then as soon as they... Oh, I fell on the other side, you know. Well, you shouldn't have been goofing off. Now you're going to get a spank. No, no, I'll listen. I, I really, I wasn't my fault and all of that. But you, you know, you're clear. This is, this is as far as you can go. And if you go any farther, uh, we're going to have to deal with it. And so they bring it upon themselves. And you're, you know, aren't you, I mean, you know, if you're hoping that you're going to spank them, there's something wrong with you. You're hoping, you man, please, please let this work finally, you know. Is there any farther I can push that boundary? I just, I'm so tired, please. But they're always right up to the edge. God is therefore acting as a good parent in disciplining his people. Read through the book of Deuteronomy and you'll see him clearly spell out the blessings for obedience and the punishments for disobedience. I mean, from our point of view as New Testament Christians, we almost get uh, bored reading it. God goes through all these blessings and then now... If you choose to disobey, here's what's going to happen. Pestilence and famine and sword and this and that and all that. And you're just like, wow, you know, who would ever disobey God with that kind of a, a threat? Or, or, you know, these are pretty clear boundaries. Uh, but, you know, obviously uh, the Israelites chose to disobey, even though God had warned them. And then he continued to warn them. He said, hey, you guys, I was serious about what I wrote there in Deuteronomy. You guys aren't in the New Testament, so you should read this. You should obey it. You should figure it out. All, the base, uh, all of Western law is going to be based on this, so you might as well read it now. And, and I want to bless you. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, Where, where's that high place? Where's that grove? Where's that pole? Where's, where's that idol that we can worship? And so for hundreds of years, God was long-suffering with them. Sadly, since they are a nation... Discipline comes to them in the form of being overthrown and overrun by another nation. It's going to be pretty rough when a nation gets disciplined. And so in verse 4, My eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. There was never a spanking I looked forward to giving or enjoyed performing. It had to be done, however. My eye could not spare Jean, nor could I have pity on Mary. Uh, it just had to be done. Babylon was an idolatrous culture and country. At one point, King Nebuchadnezzar constructed a statue of himself out in the plains and he demanded everyone bow down to it and worship. It's the famous episode in Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which was contemporary with this, uh, what's going on with Ezekiel. Uh, they, Daniel and his friends were taken... Uh, you know, and in, in, in now Ezekiel was saying, so this is all kind of happening at the same time. And so what God is saying is, hey, you know, you want to commit idolatry, I'm going to give you over to an idolatrous nation and you're going to be surrounded 
by idolatry. You're going to be swimming in idolatry. You're going to see the result of your idolatry. They had gone after abominations, so they would be surrounded by them in captivity. All of this had as its purpose that they would know that God was their Lord. It would restore them to His beauty and to their blessing. And so in verse 5, thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. It is dawn for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come. A day of trouble is near and not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and I will repay you for all your abominations. Now I'm told by Hebrew scholars that there is a play on words in this section that can't really be properly translated into English. When it says it has dawned, the phrase means that punishment has been sleeping but is now woken up. Let sleeping dogs lie is the only thing that came to me, you know, in terms of a similar expression. Punishment is something you don't want to wake up. Uh, you know, this is where sometimes you, you know, you get the warning, you know, hey, if you don't cut this out, I'm going to have to tell your father when he comes home. You don't want to wake up punishment. You want it to just stay asleep as long as it can. And, and I, you know, there's many a night... You know, I'd come home and the first thing, you know, hey, how was your day? Well, it was kind of rough today. And uh, one of the kids did this and they've been waiting for you to come home. Okay, all right, it's great. Where are they? Get down to your room, you know, find the paddle, do all of that, and then you can have dinner and stuff. And it, you know, I just, you, you want to let punishment sleep, believe me. Notice the emphasis again of the end, the time has come, it is near and soon. Time for repentance had passed. When you read that God will pour out His fury and spend His anger, keep it in context. He was going to spank them and it was for their own good. Uh, you, you know, frequently we, we poke a little bit of fun at parents out in the, in the world who, I mean, from a distance, when it's not you, you can see how ridiculous the lack of discipline is. You know, uh, that the warnings and the counting and the, the threatenings and, you know, uh, it, it's just, it's almost comical. You know, these little kids, they're three, four, five years old, they're totally in control of their parents. Uh, you, you can't even, the, their poor mom or dad, they can't even go to the store and everything's a threat. You know, you're never going to see your grandma again. I'm going to, you know, we're going to mail you to uh, Anchorage, Alaska, you know, and, and you're going to be eaten by polar bears if you, if you don't put that down right now. Did you hear me? All right, you have one more chance to put that down. Okay, well, I guess we need it. We'll go ahead and buy it for you, but don't ever, don't ever grab that again, you know. And, and uh, uh, there's, <laughs> there's kind of a, a funny story. I, I, I usually don't tell stories. I haven't gotten them written down because I'll forget the punchline. But so anyway... This guy, he's following this gal through the store and, and uh, you know, every, every couple of aisles there's an episode with the child and, and the woman, you know, her little girl and she says, she says, Mary, we're going to get home and, and we're going to get through this, you know. And then a couple of aisles later, you know, Mary, pretty soon we're, we're going to be home, everything's going to be all right and the child would, you know, put it back or quit. It's been, finally, he's behind her in line and again, you know, the child is just exasperating the mother and, and she goes... You know, Mary, just a few more minutes and we'll be in the car on the way home. And he finally says, you know, ma'am, I, I can't help but notice 
the incredible patience that you have with your daughter Mary. And she goes, I'm Mary. <laughs> because she just, she's just hanging on, you know, <laughs> for dear life. And, and uh, you know, and there are times, I don't recommend this, by the way, but there are times that I want to step in. I want to say, look, can I help you? Can I, is there something I can do? You know, but I know that, you know, that's like when a cop goes to a domestic disturbance and all of a sudden everybody turns on you. You know, the last thing you want is uh, some woman who thinks you're, have discovered that she's not really a very good mother, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, of course, she's not at the moment anyway. And, you know, and so just stay out of that. Uh, if you're taking cell phone video, be, you know, careful uh, of it. And, and uh, but it, it's just crazy. And so, um, you know, you've got to do it. Now, the paddle that God would use would be Babylon. Instead of an age-appropriate paddle, he would talk of a nation-appropriate paddle. He says, well, I've looked around. You guys need to be disciplined. Babylon, I've got them in place. They, (laughs) you know, overcame Assyria. Uh, The Medo-Persians will take care of them when I'm through with them. But right now, they're in my hand. I always like to mention that without a grasp of God's plan of redemption... You can never understand the flow of nations in world history. Uh, you know, we, we think too much of ourselves if we're just studying history and leaving God out of the equation. God didn't start the world and just let it go. He's working in and through history. He rises up nations and he tears down nations in order to accomplish his plan of redemption. And an awful lot of it has to do with the nation of Israel. Verse 9, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. Verse 8 and 9 are very similar to verses 3 and 4. There's a finality in their repetition. And now here comes the rod, verse 10 and 11. Behold the day, behold it has come. Doom has gone out. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has risen up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude, none of them nor shall there be wailing for them. Now, commentators, both Jewish and Christian, are not in agreement about what exactly the rod symbolizes. Some say it is Israel. Some say it is Babylon. Some say it is a little bit of both, or, or in each in its own context. I think it is Babylon in the hand of God as his implement of discipline because of the pride that has budded and the violence and the wickedness of the Hebrews. Babylon would besiege Jerusalem, Economic collapse would be the first result of the siege, something we can currently relate to. Verse 12, the time has come, the day draws near. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is on their whole multitude. For the seller shall not return to what has been sold, though he may still be alive, for the vision concerns the whole multitude, and it shall not turn back. No one will strengthen himself who lives in iniquity. The seller returning was like shorthand that stood for the entire Jewish economic system. You see, in Israel, they had a sabbatic law that returned property to its rightful owners every seven and every 70th year. And so this is God saying there isn't going to be a a return in, in, in the normal flow of things because you're going to be in captivity for a while. The entire system was going to collapse when Babylon took over. This was their 1929. It shall not turn back was the forecast for the economy of Israel. We're in tough economic times. We have hope, and there are signs that things will get better. What if you knew for certain that things would not turn back? 
I mean, what if, what if you could know, you know, tomorrow that, hey, nothing's going to get any better. In fact, it's going to get worse. Well, whether our economy ever rebounds and returns, we can vow to live without iniquity. We can represent the Lord. We can live for Him and serve Him. There's a prophecy going through Pentecostal churches right now across America. I think I mentioned it to you that China, there's going to be a great disaster. China is going to come in and offer us aid, but it's really just to take over our country. Uh, and so a lot of people are buying survival gear and they're getting ready to head for the hills. Um, hey, let's just represent the Lord. Let's just live for Him. Let's just serve Him uh, as well as we can. Verse 14, they have blown the trumpet and made everyone ready. No one goes to battle, for my wrath is on all their multitude. Their military might would be of no avail, even if they could match up against Babylon militarily, which they couldn't. God was against them and they would fall and fail. We must maintain the strongest military in the world, but all our military might will not avail if we turn our backs on God. It, it, you know, story after story in the Old Testament of superior fighting forces being wiped out by God and God's people uh, when they were walking with Him. Uh, when we're not walking with Him, no power can suffice. We need the Lord. Now, the next several verses depict the conditions that will prevail during and following the siege of Jerusalem. Verse 15, the sword is outside and the pestilence and famine are within. Whosoever is in the field will die by the sword and whoever is in the city, famine and pestilence will devour him. I think one of the most tragic images in our modern world is when folks in a burning building decide it's better to jump to their death than to burn to death. During the siege against Jerusalem, you would have two similar fatal choices. You could die from pestilence and famine within the city or you could sneak out into the surrounding fields and be killed by the waiting soldiers. Some would escape in the final battle during the confusion. They are described in verses 16 through 19 as the chapter closes. Those who survive will escape and be on the mountains like doves of the valley, all of them mourning, each for his iniquity. Now note the condition of their hearts. This is the first really hopeful verse so far. Finally, at long last, they will each be mourning for their own iniquity. It took this to get an individual Israelite to realize that they had sinned. In other words, God's discipline will be effective. It's just sad that they didn't repent sooner than later. And then look at their condition in verses 17 and 18. Every hand will be feeble. Every knee will be as weak as water. They will also be girded with sackcloth. Horror will cover them. Shame will be on every face, baldness on all their heads. Now in verse 17 you see the physical effects that came upon them from the long siege. It's not really the point of the verse, but I might mention that often folks who sin for a long period of time really look wasted as they destroy their bodies. I don't know if you're big on reunions, but if you go to your reunion, some people you just think, man, what happened to you? And, and it's not just the normal aging that we all go through. I recognize that, you know, we're all getting older and weirder looking. Uh, but some people, be, I mean, you know, the lifestyle they've chosen really ravages them physically. Sin may be pleasurable for a season, but it can be devastating over the course of time. Uh, and a lot of times people just don't recover. In verse 18, you have the physical effects that they bring upon themselves, as it were, to give a representation that they understand the shame of their sin. Shaving the head, wearing sackcloth, those kinds of things. Whatever happened to shame? Today folks sin openly 
and without any sense of shame. We've been desensitized to think that a politician's personal life, for example, has nothing to do with his public service. And so though some of these guys get forced out of office because of the scandal, it's usually because they used government money uh, or they did something to break the law. It's not because what they're doing is absolutely shameful. No one's ashamed of it anymore. They have press conferences and talk about how they really didn't do anything wrong. Uh, and and it's, it's sad. And so verse 19, they will throw their silver into the streets. Their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs because it became their stumbling block of iniquity. Silver and gold represent a trust in the things of this world. In the end, all things material will fail, so why trust in them at all? Why not rather invest them in the work of the kingdom of God where we know that they will pay rich dividends? I'm privileged to be on the boards of several churches, uh, mostly because I'm, in, uh, I'm friends with the guys that have started those churches. Some of them you know, uh, uh, some of them you don't. All of them are experiencing tough economic times as we all go through this depression or recession or whatever it would be properly called by uh, economists. In some cases, folks have lost their income. You really can't expect them to be giving to the kingdom of God if they have nothing to give. But in a lot of cases, income isn't the issue. In some cases, income has increased. But giving to God is down and sending children to uh, Christian schools is down and just generally the kingdom living is, is kind of taking a hit right now. It's just an observation, but I'd have to say that in some cases, the kingdom of God is not a first priority. Those folks are not seeking first the kingdom of God. I mentioned Deuteronomy. Man, it is full of blessings and bummers. I think Jesus simplified all that for us when he said, just seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things would be added unto us. And so as we close tonight, ask yourself this question. If someone were to evaluate my life, would they be able to say I am seeking first the kingdom of God. Do you ever have to fill out an evaluation? Occasionally, I, uh, I'm privileged to fill out evaluations. Somebody will come and say, hey, I'm you know, position at school or I want to go into a mission or something in this organization wants your evaluation as the pastor of the church or as the spiritual leader or whatever they want and stuff. And, you know, I try and be as, uh, well, not try to be, I am as honest, uh, you know, as possible and I, I try to be as as you know, kind as possible, but sometimes, you know, I mean, if, if you've ever been a supervisor, some of, some evaluations are rough. I mean, when you really, if you're really called upon to evaluate somebody, you have to say, well, uh, yeah, I just, I just don't see you doing anything. I mean, you're, you're just not serving. You're not doing anything, you know, I mean, and so, you know, I, and, and you're not even really easy to get along with. I mean, so I don't, I don't know how this evaluation is going to go. I need an envelope, a self-addressed stamped envelope. Uh, this is one that you can't see, you know. Uh, it, it, you're, it, just a personal, I shouldn't tell you this, but if you come in for an evaluation and I just hand it back to you, you're okay. If, if I ask you for a self-addressed stamped envelope, you're in real trouble. But, uh, anyway, I'm just being serious. Uh, anyway, uh, so, but you know, occasionally all of us are evaluated. I think God would say, hey, you know, you're listening to the Word of God. Evaluate yourself or think about if someone evaluated you on a scale and one of the questions was, 
is Gene living for the kingdom of God? What is the evidence in his life that you see that he is living for the kingdom of God, seeking first the kingdom uh, of God? Is there, is there any evidence of that in his life? Any evidence in your life? I know you want there to be, uh, and I know in most cases there is. So every day work towards getting or maintaining an affirmative answer to that question until the Lord comes. Amen?